Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Ayala, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's workshop. Uh, today's program is called Living with Lung Cancer. It's a two-part series, and today's program is titled Advances in the Treatment of Lung Cancer. And um, today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations, as well as specific lung cancer organizations. I really just want to call out those lung cancer organizations, Free Me from Lung Cancer, Free to Breathe, Lung Cancer Alliance, and Longevity Foundation. So these are wonderful resources for all of you to be able to access um, in terms of specific to, being, to, to lung cancer. Now we have on the program today over 445 participants, and you come from all over the United States. And we also have international participants from Canada, China, India, Japan, Singapore, and the United Kingdom. So it's really a credit to all of you that you've chosen to spend this next hour with us. Today's program is supported by AbbVie, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Pfizer, and a grant from Genentech. And I really want to thank them for their support of the program and also for their collaborative partnership in making this program possible. Now, we have wonderful speakers on today's program, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Heather Wakeley, and Dr. Wakeley is Professor of Medicine, Division of Oncology, Stanford Cancer Institute, member, Thoracic Oncology, Faculty Director of Stanford Cancer Clinical Trials Office. And Dr. Wakeley is going to present an overview of the treatment of lung cancer, including current standard of care, chemotherapy, and targeted cancer ther therapies, and new treatment approaches. It's really my pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Wakeley. Thanks, Carolyn. It's um, great to be here and to, um, to address this audience. So the uh, treatment of lung cancer, and we're going to be focusing particularly in non-small cell lung cancer during this hour, but are certainly open to questions about small cell later. But this is an area, the treatment of lung cancer, that has just been changing rapidly. It seems that every week uh, there's a new big report coming out about a trial that's potentially going to be changing practice. So for the audience, I want to back up and, and talk about sort of how do we think about treatment, what are the different types of treatment. I'm first going to be talking about the treatment of what we call metastatic or cancer that has spread away from just the lung and then talk a little bit about the earlier stages as well. Um, but it's important to focus in on the, the metastatic disease. That's the majority of what patients are dealing with. And the treatments that we use there and no work in metastatic disease, we then can bring into earlier stages as well. The backbone of treatment of lung cancer still remains chemotherapy. Chemotherapy has been around for a long time, and, and these are drugs that are usually given um, by vein uh, with an IV, but some of them are also pill drugs. And, and they're working by targeting some aspect of how a cell is making a new cell through DNA. So in order to make a new cell, current cells have to make new DNA, and then that can then go on to be part of that new cell that's being developed. And cancer by its nature of continuing to grow, is doing that more than normal cells. And so that's how chemotherapy is developed. We figure out a way that we can poison the cancer cell without causing too much damage to normal cells. And that's how our traditional chemotherapies are used. And those are still really important treatments for many people living with lung cancer. Even people who are getting immune therapy and targeted therapy, many of them will at some point still need chemotherapy. So I always like to emphasize its importance because there's a, this big fear of chemotherapy that many people have that's often unwarranted. Chemo can be challenging, but it also can be really helpful. So um, that's still a, a part of our treatments today, even as new treatments are developed all the time. But where things are really changing are in the aspects of both targeted and immune-based therapies. And when I started treating lung cancer patients uh, now uh, well over a decade ago, we didn't have any, any of these options. We only had the chemotherapy. Then we started learning about targeted treatments. And when we talk about targeted treatments, we're talking about a therapy that instead of targeting some aspect of making new DNA is instead 
targeting something that's different about the cancer cell as opposed to the normal cell. And oftentimes this has to do with a, a specific gene mutation. And the first one we learned about was a protein called EGFR, or epidermal growth factor receptor. And we realized that a lot of people who have lung cancer have changes in this EGFR gene, which then causes the EGFR protein. And so drugs were developed that would turn off this EGFR protein that was turned on all the time in some lung cancer patients who had this EGFR mutation. And we, we figured out that not everybody has an EGFR mutation, but about 10% of all people with lung cancer have an EGFR mutation in their tumor. It's not something that's in the rest of the body. It's just in the tumor. But when we're able to find that, we can give people a pill drug. And there are now multiple different pill drugs approved around the world for treating EGFR-mutated lung cancer. And when a patient is found to have an EGFR mutation in their tumor, and it's really important that we think about testing for these specific gene mutations whenever a lung cancer is found, when we find one of those, especially this EGFR, instead of starting with the chemo, we could instead start people on a pill drug with a very high likelihood of having a quick shrinkage of the tumor where that tumor can stay controlled for a period of time. And of course, that amount of time is variable for each person. And in the time since we first discovered this EGFR mutation that then led to, um, that was causing the EGFR mutation and, and causing the EGFR protein to be abnormal in a lot of lung cancer patients, we found the first treatments that worked to control that disease. Over time, the cancer cells change in a way where those first type of EGFR drugs don't work, but we now have the second type of EGFR drugs that can work, and we're working on the third. So instead of um, having patients start initially on chemotherapy, if we can find this EGFR protein mutation in the gene, we give the pill, patients do well for a long time, and then can move on to other EGFR therapy, and eventually can move on to chemotherapy and potentially um, also immune therapy. And what I really wanted to emphasize in talking about it that way is that for people diagnosed now with a metastatic lung cancer, when we can find a target and we can use a targeted therapy, that's going to give time, hopefully quality time, and then we can move on to the next treatment, which is hopefully also going to provide quality time and, and keep going in that manner so that people can continue to leave full, live full and active lives even as their treatment's under control. Now, EGFR is only, like I said, about 10% of all patients with lung cancer, but we've also now started to identify more and more of these specific genes that can be the root problem in people living with lung cancer um, and who have developed lung cancer. And the next most common one that we've identified is something called ALK, and there's something called MET and BRAF, and I'll, I won't keep going on and on, but the point is if we can find a specific gene mutation in a tumor and start someone on a targeted drug, they often have um, a very good response to that. And so that's the first thing we think about when someone's diagnosed with a, um, especially adenocarcinoma type of lung cancer, is we try to figure out, is there a specific gene mutation that gives us a targeted option? And if we find it, we know to start with that treatment. If we don't, the next thing we're also thinking about is instead of chemotherapy, do we have these options with these new immune drugs? So I've talked about how with chemo, the chemotherapy drugs are doing something to change the way the cell's making DNA and therefore to poison the cancer cells and not the rest of the body because the cancer cells are making DNA more. And we talked about these targets where if we find a specific gene mutation in the tumor, we can often give these targeted pills. But the other thing we're hoping to be able to do in all of these therapies is try to get our own immune system which is working to fight off infection, to also start really doing a better job of fighting off cancer. So in all of us, there are, little, there are cells that become abnormal that, if left alone, could potentially lead to cancer. But usually our immune system is able to find those cells and kill them. When a cancer is developed, it means that those cancer cells have figured out a way to evade the immune system and get away from it. And so these newer drugs, which are called um, checkpoint inhibitors or immune therapy or IO, and there's several of them that are available now. Um, these are the drugs uh, pembrolizumab and nivolumab and atezolizumab. Many of the audience has probably heard of them. Those drugs, what they're doing instead of directly attacking the cancer cell is they're boosting up the immune system. And they do that by blocking 
one of the usual stop signals. So there's a constant balance in our immune system between signals telling the immune system to attack a particular area and the others telling it to block. Because we, we don't want the immune system to attack our normal tissue. We need it to recognize what's normal and what's abnormal and um, appropriately attack the abnormal. So what these new drugs are doing is helping the immune system to see a cancer cell as a cancer cell and not something that's normal. Um, these are drugs that target something called PD-1 and PDL one and PDL one is a way a tumor can hide, sort of puts that protein out, and, and that makes the immune system think it's normal cell. When you block that interaction, the cancer cell is no longer masked and the immune system can attack it. So we found that these drugs work particularly well in, pro, in tumors that are using a lot of PDL one to hide. And so when we find someone who has a newly diagnosed lung cancer, we now look to see, does that tumor have a high level of PDL1? And if it does, one of the biggest changes in treatment that's happened is we, we know now that we can use one of these PDL1 drugs, especially the pembrolizumab is what's approved in that setting. Instead of giving chemo, we can give that drug and, and also have a good response against the tumor. We still have a ways to go before we can say we're really curing, but we can make a big impact in treatment and, and give people more quality time. And where things are really rapidly changing is we're now recognizing that if we add those drugs to chemotherapy, they seem to work even better. So in the last few months, we've heard about trials where each of those three immune drugs I mentioned have been added to chemotherapy or added to other immune therapy and have looked to be better than standard chemotherapy treatments. So that's where things are rapidly, rapidly changing. And uh, at each conference we go to now, there's a new option that we have to treat our patients with newly diagnosed metastatic disease. So it's a really exciting time and a lot of hope for our patients living with metastatic lung cancer. These treatments are also now being looked at for people with earlier stages disease, like stage one and two, which is treated usually with surgery. Now we know um, that there, there are trials ongoing trying to figure out if we can give the immune drugs for people right after surgery, and then for people who have later stages of disease, stage three, which is when it's um, a little bit, it's grown in the lung and also in the lymph nodes, those patients can get treated with chemotherapy and radiation, and now we are starting to look at giving immune therapy as a standard approach for them as well. The, there's just a, a new trial that came out showing that that might be a good thing to think about also. So you'll be hearing a lot more from the other speakers about this radiation approach and also about clinical trials. And so with that, I'm going to uh, let the other speakers come on as well, but really just to emphasize to all the listeners how exciting it is now to have now no longer just chemotherapy, but targeted treatments we've known about and are learning about new ones all the time, and also immune therapy as well, which is really changing our treatment options that we have available. So thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Wakeley. That was really outstanding and just a wonderful way to start the call and lots of information and lots of people to kind of grapple with and understand and to have questions during the Q&A. So remember, there will be a Q&A section, and we welcome your questions at that time as well. And our next speaker is Dr. Bob Lee, and Dr. Lee is attending medical oncologist, thoracic oncology and early drug development service, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And Dr. Lee is going to address the role of precision medicine in informing treatment choices, how clinical trials contribute to treatment of options, and managing side effects, discomfort, and pain. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Lee. Thank you, Dr. Mesner, for giving me uh, this great opportunity uh, to speak uh, on this topic uh, and for arranging such a good forum uh, for cancer care. Um, and um, uh, just following on the excellent summary provided by Dr. Wakeley, I'm going to talk about the role of precision medicine uh, specifically uh, uh, more on clinical trials uh, and also some uh, aspects on uh, side effect management and uh, supportive care for cancer symptoms. So uh, to be begin with, uh, Dr. Wakeley had already mentioned uh, the importance of um, different types of systemic therapies uh, for patients uh, with lung cancers. So unfortunately, most lung cancers are diagnosed still at an advanced stage and those are uh, today by today's science still considered incurable, uh, but there are uh, effective, uh, a list of effective treatments and, and the list is getting longer uh, through good research and uh, to aimed at uh, controlling uh, symptoms, improving quality of life uh, and also prolonging 
overall survival. Uh, and, uh, so those are the making the patients live uh, longer and live better. Uh, uh, basically are our current aims of uh, systemic therapy. We uh, certainly, uh, certainly long to see that day when we can cure once for all, all the lung cancers. Uh, we're not there yet, uh, but certainly uh, the research is accelerating uh, and, and uh, this is a, a really exciting era in, in oncology. So um, uh, Dr. Lewakley had already touched upon the importance of uh, uh, doing a subset analysis of lung cancers, firstly by histology, that's looking under the microscope, uh, looking at um, uh, whether it's small cell lung cancer, non-small cell lung cancer. This is a historic divide uh, in terms of uh, tumor biology and treatment. But uh, within non-small cell lung cancer, uh, there's also squamous cell lung cancer, adenocarcinoma, uh, large cell neuroendocrine cancers, and uh, etc. So um, uh, those molecular uh, those uh, histologic subsets are still important in selecting the uh, best treatment, specifically which chemotherapy agents. Um, now, deeper than that, we go uh, onto a molecular level. And uh, as Dr. Wakeley had already uh, touched upon, EGFR mutation testing, ALK fusion testing, uh, ROS1 fusion testing, and BRAF V600E mutation testing uh, extremely important because we now have FDA-approved targeted precision therapies uh, in the form of a pill uh, that's uh, available for patients with those types of lung cancers. And if you don't test it, then we will never get a chance to get onto a highly effective therapy that's already been shown in, uh, in uh, many respects uh, to be more effective than um, standard chemotherapy. Uh, especially for those targeting EGFR and ALK. Um, but not all lung cancers have those um, uh, mutational uh, targets. Uh, we also look at um, other uh, molecular signatures, including uh, the uh, protein stain for PD-L1, and that may help with choosing um, immunotherapy uh, and when to use it uh, up front or later line. And that, that uh, does help uh, decision-making in selecting the best and most precise treatment for the, uh, for the very patient. Uh, there are some emerging uh, biomarkers that's very important, including uh, next-generation sequencing, uh, looking at an extended panel of genes um, that uh, can be susceptible to uh, highly effective uh, therapies as well in the uh, clinical trial setting. So this includes uh, MET-exon-14, uh, met high-level amplification fusions in the RET gene, in the NTRAC gene, um, and also uh, HER2 mutations and amplifications. And BRAF, uh, the, the atypical BRAF mutations that are not uh, V600 are now being uh, studied uh, by a variety of investigational uh, drugs uh, in clinical trials. Uh, and again, if you don't find them, if you don't look for them, you're not going to find them, and you're not going to be able to get onto a, a new therapy option. So all those therapies are designed to, uh, uh, to add benefit, and they're not mutually exclusive, whether it's targeted therapy, chemotherapy, or immunotherapy. We, they are essential components of our armamentarium against cancer, and uh, we would generally like to exhaust all possible and appropriate treatments so that each treatment can prolong uh, life and, and improve life to some degree. And if you add it all up, then certainly the more chances you have the, in treatment, the more chances you, you have in living the longest. So we uh, certainly highly encourage clinical trial enrollment uh, when you have one of those targets for precision therapy. Um, and if you add all the mutations up, uh, there's also a... Uh, uh, an emerging biomarker called tumor mutational burden, and that's been looked at as a predictor of response to immunotherapy. And uh, there's certainly data that's emerging uh, showing that this uh, biomarker, this mutational burden, has um, uh, tumor mutational burden, or known as TMB, uh, is, is a promising biomarker that can help physicians choose um, the best uh, therapy, uh, particularly when it comes to immunotherapy. Uh, liquid biopsy for, for uh, circulating tumor DNA in the blood is also a, uh, 
uh, a promising uh, tool uh, that we are now increasingly adopting uh, in the clinic and, and also un undergoing heavy research um, to help with this uh, tumor profiling. So tumors can shed a lot of DNA into the bloodstream and they're floating all throughout the blood. So you have normal DNA that's floating and you have a mixture of tumor DNA. And by a tube of blood, we can now have the... Uh, uh, using the latest technologies in genetic sequencing to capture those fragments of free-floating DNA and map out the cancer genome uh, from that angle. And this can complement what we already do on tissue to add additional information, and that may also enhance um, our ability to, to uh, match uh, patients onto uh, better, better therapies. So um, uh, this is also a... a, a plays a role in the uh, precision medicine front. Um, and uh, as Dr. Wakeley uh, had already explained, uh, this is a moving field and moving very rapidly. Uh, we are also looking at how to integrate all the clinical trial results, sometimes using combinations and different uh, permutations and combinations of therapies, uh, sometimes chemotherapy combined with immunotherapy or radiation therapy combined uh, with uh, immunotherapy that Dr. Rosenzweig may touch upon later on. Um, and uh, so uh, this, is, uh, this is certainly a very hot area, and, and certainly the tumor mutational testing um, is, uh, is certainly uh, very, very important uh, in order for patients to get on to, uh, to have the opportunity to benefit uh, from these new therapies. Uh, just briefly on uh, the uh, supportive care aspects, it's very important that cancer symptoms or, or side effects are dealt with adequately. Um, we have a variety of tools, both non-pharmacological tools and also uh, medications that can help with uh, symptoms of all, all kinds of symptoms, whether it's caused by cancer, uh, which is very common, and or by the uh, therapies. Um, uh, it's about uh, quantity as well as quality of life, so this needs to be dealt with, especially cancer pain. Uh, cancer pain is very important to control, and uh, the patients should not have to uh, put up with pain, as some may be falsely uh, led to believe, uh, that they, if they're strong and they toughen out and, and, and put up with pain and not take any medication, they do better. It's quite the contrary. Patients who have pain have diminished um, function and performance status, uh, and uh, those who have pain may actually breathe uh, less deeply. They may have shallow breathing, and they, that could increase the risk of lung collapse and pneumonias and all kinds of other complications as well, um, and, and directly impacts upon the performance status of the patient, which affects treatment, affects outcomes, affects ability to get, get onto clinical trials. So I would urge that, um, uh, that all patients and their families discuss pain management with their uh, oncologist and, and physician. Uh, usually a nurse uh, or a clinical pharmacist uh, should be an integral part of uh, the team who can also spend additional time to manage, help manage those symptoms. There are also palliative care clinics uh, that's uh, uh, now increasingly available uh, throughout all uh, cancer centers uh, across the nation. Uh, and it's recognized as extremely important, uh, not only for quality of life, but also for quantity of life, that if you uh, have better control of symptoms, you live longer. And that's a fact that's proven on randomized trials. So uh, it's, it's very important, and there's going to a palliative care clinic, a specialist clinic to manage cancer pain or cancer symptoms is an integral part of care and, and very important. At Memorial Sloan Kettering, because of the historic, uh, historical stigma that we uh, patients associate with, uh, the, with the, uh, the word palliative, uh, we actually changed the name to supportive care uh, clinic uh, just to, uh, uh, to point the patients in the right direction. This is not about death and dying. This is about living well. So when you, when you come across the word palliative, this is really about alleviating symptoms and improving quality of life. This is not about death and dying. Um, and uh, and even if you, when when it comes to the um, uh, to death and dying, which is the inevitable that every human being has to come come to eventually, um, that uh, quality is is even more important at the end of life. 
so this this really should should happen at the get go. Uh, so uh, I will now uh, turn to Dr. Rosenzweig, who uh, will also give um, uh, additional uh, dissertation, especially on the role of radiation treatment, which is very very important uh, for uh, cancer symptom control, but also also for many other things too. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Lee. That was really outstanding, and I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. Thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Kenneth Rosenzweig, and Dr. Rosenzweig is Professor and Chair, Department of Radiation Oncology, Mount Sinai Health System. And uh, Dr. Rosenzweig is going to address the uh, role of radiation oncology, uh, different types of radiation treatments, and communicating with the healthcare team about quality of life concerns. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Rosenzweig. Hi. Thank you, Dr. Messner, and thank you very much for everyone who's listening to this call. Uh, so I am a radiation oncologist. Uh, so radiation oncology is using radiation uh, to treat cancer. And radiation is somewhat unique for its role in uh, lung cancer because it can be used pretty much at every aspect uh, of the disease where people might have uh, different challenges. Um, so just to go through the, the different stages of disease, and probably the most exciting thing that's happened uh, for, in radiation for lung cancer has been the use of uh, a very specialized form of radiation therapy called stereotactic body radiation therapy to treat early stage lung cancer. So these are lung cancers which are just a spot in the lung that haven't spread to any of the lymph nodes or to any other part of the body. And traditionally, uh, these tumors are treated with surgery. Uh, so cutting the tumor out is the best way to take care of it. And surgery is still the standard of care in this situation. Uh, but many people aren't able to undergo a surgery um, because they uh, might be a bit older, they might have other uh, medical problems that would make the surgery very challenging. So in the past, uh, we used to uh, give radiation to this, and it worked okay. Uh, but then with some of the new technology in radiation, we're able to target the tumor a lot better. I know target's a word we're using a lot today. Um, uh, for So when uh, Dr. Wakeley and Dr. Lee talk about targeting, they're talking about uh, the molecules on the cell. Uh, when a radiation oncologist talks about targeting, we're talking about making sure the radiation beam that we're aiming at the tumor um, is hitting the tumor. Uh, and so stereotactic radiation, uh, we make sure that we're on target, that we verify that we're going to hit the tumor, and we're able to do a much more aggressive treatment that way because less of the normal tissue has to uh, get hit by the radiation to make sure that we're adequately treating the tumor. And the results of this type of treatment have really been uh, fantastic and really almost approaching uh, the same um, you know, util you know, ability of surgery to take care of these tumors. So it's been a very... Um, you know, promising and exciting time that for people who used to be facing the challenge of an early stage lung cancer but weren't healthy enough to have a major surgery, now have a treatment option that really works uh, as well as surgery. Um, and it's also an extremely convenient treatment. Typically, people have to come in just a handful of times uh, to get the treatment. Each treatment takes about a half an hour. It's all done as an outpatient. And when they're done after a week or so, um, their treatment is done. And the side effects are important to discuss uh, with the doctor who uh, is treating you because it depends a little bit uh, on the location of the tumor. But typically, uh, tiredness is the major side effect. And there can be some other side effects if the uh, tumor is right near a, a structure, but that would have to be an individualized uh, discussion. But it's really been a very encouraging time uh, the past eight to ten years where this new technology has really been useful. 
has really changed and improved the lives of many people uh, struggling with lung cancer. And radiation is also used in situations where the tumor has spread to the lymph nodes, and it can be used in conjunction with surgery or as a replacement for surgery, which I know sounds kind of confusing, uh, but, it's, but it's the case. So sometimes after someone has had a surgery, if there's a concern that there might still be some cancer cells left behind, uh, we frequently give radiation uh, to the area where the cancer had been to kind of clean up the area, which is kind of a funny way of saying it, but just to kill any cells uh, that might be there that can grow if, if otherwise uh, not treated. And typically these patients also get uh, chemotherapy uh, either with or before uh, the radiation, again, to try to take care of any stray cells that might be left behind. Um, again, in situations where the uh, the tumor has spread to the lymph node, so we, we call this an, a locally advanced lung cancer, and if the person can't have surgery, uh, then the radiation takes the place of the surgery. Um, so there are a couple of reasons why people wouldn't be able to have a surgery. Um, same as for the situation for people with an early lung cancer where they just might not be healthy enough to undergo a major operation. Or sometimes the tumor's in a, just a difficult place for the surgeon to get to, and it's just not going to be uh, possible for the surgeon to cut the tumor out. So in these situations, the radiation would take the place of the surgery, and it's always given at the same time uh, with chemotherapy. Uh, we found over the years it just works better if you give the chemotherapy and the radiation simultaneously. And usually, uh, unlike the early-stage tumors where it's just a couple of treatments, uh, this, because we're treating a bigger area, has to be done a little bit more slowly. So it's usually about six weeks of treatment, uh, five days a week, uh, where uh, the person who's getting the radiation comes in Monday through Friday. Treatment's about 15 minutes. Um, and again, all done as an outpatient, uh, but it you know, but it's going to take uh, you know just more time to to get all the treatments in. Uh, and you know, depending on which chemotherapy is being used, um, the um, you know the the chemotherapy might be uh, once a week during treatment, or a couple of days every three weeks. It, it depends a little bit on on the decision the medical oncologist makes on which is the best uh, chemotherapy agents to use. And this treatment can be challenging. The tiredness is, an, is a typical problem, a sore throat that makes it uh, difficult to um, swallow really hard foods can be a problem, uh, but we're able to give medicines uh, to help out with, with these uh, side effects of treatment and get people through them. And then finally, um, radiation also plays a role in situations where the tumor has spread outside of the chest, uh, what we call metastatic disease. So these are situations where uh, the, the tumor uh, might be causing some problems. So if there's a tumor in the bone, it can sometimes be painful, uh, and we give radiation to kill the tumor just in that spot um, to help uh, alleviate any symptoms uh, the tumor's causing. Uh, there are some special situations when the tumor has spread. Uh, if there's a tumor in the brain, uh, we typically give a very focused dose of radiation, again, similar to the focused dose of radiation we give in the lung, um, and sometimes we do it just in one treatment uh, to uh, take care of that tumor there. And that's a very involved treatment. It's also called stereotactic treatment, uh, but, it, but in the brain, not, not in the body. And it's also a very effective way to take care of brain metastases uh, caused by the tumor. And I know uh, Dr. Wakeley and Dr. Lee were discussing immunotherapy. And probably the latest thing right now is um, we know that radiation can be very helpful to make the immunotherapy more effective. And there's been a lot of work going on trying to combine the very focused radiation and immunotherapy in order to uh, generate a response uh, of the immunotherapy throughout the body. This 
this technique probably isn't ready for prime time just yet, but there's been a, a lot of research going on on this, and I hope in the next few years we find some exciting new solutions to combine both the radiation and the immunotherapy. Uh, thank you very much. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Lesenswag. That was wonderful and just very informative and, and very important for everyone to understand all the different roles of radiation therapy for their treatment. So thank you. And I know we have questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you. Um, and our next speaker is Ms. Diana Bairden. Ms. Bairden is a, a dietitian, um, and she is with um, the Meninger Clinic. And I now turn the program over to Ms. Bairden. Thank you, Carolyn. I'm excited to be part of today's presentation addressing nutritional concerns in the presence of lung cancer. Nutrition and hydration are key to tolerance to treatment and providing you the energy to do the things you enjoy. A plant-based diet is most ideal for prevention, during treatment, and during survivorship. Prevention and nutrition translates into having about two-thirds of your plate um, plant-based, and plant-based foods are things like whole grains, fruits and vegetables, nuts and seeds, and the reason why two-thirds of your plate is covered with these plant-based foods is because they provide us antioxidants, phytochemicals, and fiber, which are important for our body to function um, at its optimal um, regularly. The other third of your plate um, should be of lean protein. Protein can be of a plant-based food or of an animal-based food. Um, animal-based proteins such as wild-caught fish, poultry, and plant-based foods such as beans and quinoa are options um, that you could also bring to change up your, your meals. Protein is the building block for healing, and so it's very important that we bring protein in our diet. Oftentimes, this can be a conversation between the patient and the provider, and um, talking with your dietitian, she can help you come up with some really great options for protein um, for protein items to bring into your food into your meal plan. As we get into the plant, other plant-based foods, um, so selecting fresh or frozen for our fruits and vegetables are really the best forms um, to get them in. They're um, more nutrient dense. They're closer to harvest. Um, and they're going to provide us um, a lot more of those vitamins and minerals than the canned vegetables will. And also, they'll also bring less sodium. There may be a need for you to take supplements during um, your treatment, and this is all based on your unique circumstances. This can sometimes be very confusing for patients that they should start a multivitamin or do additional supplements. Um, I encourage you to talk with your healthcare professional before taking anything. Um, oftentimes there can be interactions that don't seem obvious at the beginning, but that can be really important in how your body reacts to the medications and treatment you receive. There may be times in your treatment you have to modify your diet due to the side effects or potentially um, maybe after a surgery there might be some new changes that will, that will be part of your diet from there on. So constant communication with your healthcare team um, related to these challenges and changes and, and questions you have um, throughout your treatment, um, it's very important. Um, communication is the key to successful, um, to successful healthcare. One thing that oftentimes is overlooked is hydration. And dehydration can cause uh, its own set of side effects, so I like to touch on this. Um, dehydration can increase our symptoms and, and feeling of nausea, fatigue, even make you feel dizzy and lightheaded. Fluids or anything that are liquid at room temperature, such as water, juice, or sports drinks. In general, most people need between 8 to 10 8-ounce glasses of fluid a day. Again, in keeping great communication with your healthcare team is the key to successful care, and a dietitian is part of your team, so please reach out um, to your dietitian and stay in good communication. Carolyn, I'm going to hand it back over to you. Oh, thanks so much, Ms. Bearden. That was excellent. And our last speaker is uh, Mr. Wynn Burkle. Mr. Burkle is an oncology social worker, and he's director of social service in Long Island, and he's also lung cancer program coordinator for Cancer Care. And Mr. Burkle is going to address Cancer Care's free psychosocial programs and services and the role of support groups. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Mr. Burkle. Thank you, Carolyn. 
you know, I'm sure most of us remember the time we moved into our first new home or even our last new home, and I'm sure most of us wondered how we were ever going to find our way in this new community or neighborhood. Many of us were fortunate enough to get a visit from the welcome wagon or maybe a very helpful neighbor who helped us find the nearest supermarket, service station, house of worship, school, and all the other services so essential to support our daily life. The more things we were able to connect to in our neighborhood, the more we felt that we had things under control. You know, being diagnosed with lung cancer is in some ways very much like moving into a new neighborhood. Our cancer pushes us into a strange and sometimes scary new environment, and we really don't know where anything is and what we can do to get some control over a very difficult change in our lives. Fortunately, Cancer Care serves in the role of that good neighbor who is there to help you find your way in this strange new place. Here's how. Cancer Care's user-friendly website, www.cancercare.org, in addition to providing a wealth of cancer information and topics, serves as a convenient entry point to connect with the many services which Cancer Care makes available free of charge for lung cancer patients and those who care for them. These services include things such as education and a wide range of supportive assistance resources. Let's look at these services in a bit more detail. Cancer Care's educational program reaches out to include its array of Connect Education workshops, which provide information on coping with the physical and emotional impact of cancer, such as today's workshop, as well as informative workshops on diagnosis-specific cancer topics. Replays of these workshops are available both online at Cancer Care's website, www.cancercare.org, and via your phone. Many folks find it convenient to download these replays to their iPods and MP3 players. The education program also provides CANSA's well-known Cancer Care Connect booklets, which are available free of charge and are packed with up-to-date information on treatments and the latest coping strategies to help cancer patients and those who care for them. Over the years, we've distributed millions of these very popular publications. While one is at our website... They can also sign up for Cancer Care's popular free e-newsletter or catch up with our latest information, CopeLink blogs. Cancer Care's support services are provided by its professionally trained staff of experienced oncology social workers who are there to assist folks like you in dealing with the many issues which arise from the diagnosis of lung cancer. These issues may include assistance with emotional issues in which they assess clients and provide appropriate, helpful psychosocial interventions, assistance with practical issues such as financial assistance through Cancer Care's limited financial assistance programs and referrals to the Cancer Care Copay Assistance Foundation and other financial assistance resources, assistance with resource finding in which our social workers refer folks to the many organizations and agencies established to help cancer patients, assistance with navigating the system in which cancer care social workers assist people in understanding how to best manage the many new relationships involved in health care, assistance with communications in which our workers are skilled at helping folks learn how to best communicate with their health care providers, employers, friends, and family members about their new situation. Cancer care social workers provide this assistance in a variety of friendly settings, such as at Cancer Care's national office and its regional office in the tri-state New York metropolitan area, where folks can receive individual and group counseling face-to-face. Over the phone, where people from across the nation can find immediate assistance by contacting the Cancer Care Helpline, 1-800-813-HOPE, and longer-term assistance through individual telephone counseling, with a cancer care social worker, as well as connecting with other people in professionally facilitated telephone support groups, and online, where people from across the country share concerns in professionally-led online support groups, which are available 24-7 for participation. Our popular support groups, whether for patient or caregiver, and whether they're experienced in face-to-face, online, or telephone modalities, provide the group member with a safe place to share the burdens, feelings, and stress with others who are involved in a very similar situation. There's no need to explain yourself in a support group. They know what you're talking about. Group members share helpful tips and information on the best way to cope with the experience of lung cancer. So many of our support group members talk about belonging to that special family which helps them live with lung cancer each day. 
the professional facilitative skills of cancer care's oncology social workers ensure that each support group member is maintained as a safe and special place for each and every member. Call us today to learn more about this wonderful resource. You know, I'm sure none of us ever expected to find ourselves moved to the neighborhood of lung cancer. But now that you're here, be assured that Cancer Care, like that good neighbor, is there with you. Connect with us at www.cancercare.org or by talking with us at 1-800-813-HOPE. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, uh, Mr. Merkel. That was wonderful. And now we have time for questions. And um, I'm going to ask Mayala um, to bring all of our speakers on board. And we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. And if we don't get to your question, I will give you information about how to get your questions answered. But let's, let's see how many of your questions we can take right now. So Ayala, if you could explain to everyone how to post their questions, and then we'll, we'll, start, we'll start the questions. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And our first question is from Emil S. Your line is now open. Two-part question. How do you know which clinical trial is best for your specific lung cancer so that you stay with the trial throughout its entire run? And the second question, if lung cancer goes outside of the lung, how do you determine it is from lung cancer and not a cancer of that organ or any other org or any other cancer? Is it treated similarly to cancer of that organ, or is it specifically treated just as lung cancer? Well, thank you, Emil, for those questions. Excellent questions. Um, Dr. Wakeley, would you like to start with uh, just the first part of that question, um, and Dr. Lee, the second part? That would probably make sense. Okay. Okay, great. Um, so those are both fabulous questions. I think um, in trying to figure out what's the right treatment at any given point, it's important to talk with your care team about what are the standard approaches and then what are the clinical trials. And really it's going to be, for the most part, ones that are available in your area. There are occasionally times where there's something that sounds so exciting that's an ongoing trial that it's going to be worth traveling, but you're going to have to really weigh those factors and, you know, um, the inconvenience of the travel and the challenge to you and your family in that kind of a setting. So it can be very appropriate, but oftentimes we're looking locally. And then the question that's going to be asked is, what is the standard? How is this treatment better? What new treatment is being added to a standard approach? And what is the likelihood this is going to help or hurt? And we, we usually can't answer those questions specifically, um, but it's to really weigh that with your care provider who can help you kind of make sense. Once you are on a trial, the trials are going to be constantly monitoring each of the trial participants to try to figure out is the net likely benefit from this treatment still outweighing the, the, any risks from it. And if at any time it looks like the treatment is actually harmful and this is true trial or not trial um, or that it's not working, then it's going to be time to think about, okay, what's going to be the next step? And for most of the trials, they want to follow patients while they're on treatment, of course, and then for a period of time afterwards, sometimes for as long as the patient is still um, on whatever treatments they're on into the future. Um, and so that's just, you'll know what you're being asked to do as part of signing up for each study. So hopefully that's, that's answering that aspect of the question. But um, it's great to, at any time you're about to start a new treatment, before you actually start it, stop and ask your care providers, is there a trial that might be a better option for me right now before I start this new treatment. Um, and to really talk about that, there's also a website, the clinicaltrials.gov website, um, and a lot of patient advocacy groups that can also help you kind of identifying studies that might work. And then once you're on a trial, before you actually start, you'll go through a consent process and they'll go through everything that's going to be involved in that trial so you really know and understand what you're signing up for before you start, including the follow-up. Excellent. Thank you. And Dr. Lee, if you would take that second part about um, how do you know where the, the spread is, where it's coming from? Um, sure. Uh, so uh, I agree with Dr. Wakeley entirely on the first question. On the second question about the, uh, uh, the tumor that's uh, left uh, outside of the lung, uh, how do we know it's lung cancer versus other cancers? Well, the, the, the only definitive um, way of, of um, uh, to, to 
diagnose this with absolute certainty is through a biopsy and to examine that under the microscope with histology to see if the uh, tumor outside of the lung is ac actually came from the lung. Uh, in clinical practice, uh, however, it's very it's more, more, certainly more often and, and uh, a lot more common when lung cancer, when it's left the lung, you have a primary tumor in the lung and you have multiple sites of metastasis outside of the lung. And it's simply, uh, in practice, not possible uh, to biopsy every single metastatic site, nor is it uh, appropriate to do so and, and necessary. So um, in such circumstances, it's judged by the pattern of spread the clinical nature, the symptoms of the patient, and this um, is a clinical judgment uh, looking at also the radiology image, imaging. It's a clinical judgment by the, uh, the treating physician, uh, usually uh, a, a medical oncologist uh, who's treating uh, metastatic disease. However, if there are cases in doubt, if you have a primary lung tumor and you only have one other site of metastasis and you're not certain uh, whether that's a uh, a metastasis from the lung cancer uh, versus a primary tumor, a second synchronous primary, as we call it, a, a second cancer that's arising from, for example, the colon, um, which is a slightly unusual uh, area for lung cancer to spread to, um, then a, a, a biopsy, uh, uh, one form or another, uh, would be indicated. But in vast majority of cases, if you have a lung cancer that's spread to lymph nodes, to bone, to liver, uh, to the adrenal or to the brain, we don't go after every single site, and that, that would not be necessary. So it is a, also a clinical judgment. Awesome. Thank you. Um, and we have a question for Dr. Rosenzweig from one of our online participants. Is proton beam therapy a viable option for treatment? Um, yeah, thank you for that question. So a proton beam is a very special type of radiation. Um, so when radiation enters the body, um, it delivers most of its radiation dose in the first few centimeters and then um, gives off dose as it travels through the body. So by the time it's exiting the body, it's still probably delivering as much as half of the radiation dose in that particular beam. Um, proton therapy has the advantage of traveling a few centimeters into the body, and then delivering almost the entire amount of radiation in a very short distance. Um, so proton therapy is extremely helpful in situations where the tumor is right next to a very critical structure. Um, so you can imagine some situations where the tumor is right next to the spinal cord, or to the nerves that go uh, from the eye to the brain or different parts of the brain. And uh, so these are some of the classic uses of proton beam radiation. Um, also, it's used uh, very commonly in children who have pediatric cancers who need to get radiation uh, because um, you don't want radiation traveling uh, through the body in uh, children uh, uh, for some very obvious reasons, because hopefully they're going to live a long time, and um, we know that many years down the road there's a risk of uh, radiation causing cancers. Not as much of a consideration in, in an older population or an adult population, but certainly something worrisome in children. Uh, and also the bones are still growing, and can, that can be affected by uh, the radiation. So in lung cancer, uh, there have been many studies uh, looking at the use of protons, and there definitely are some specific situations where proton radiation um, is going to uh, be uh, more helpful. Uh, but for the most part, uh, traditional radiation that can be delivered through a linear accelerator is going to be uh, you work just as well as proton therapy for most people with lung cancer. Um, there had also been, you know, and also proton therapy uh, can be uh, uh, very inconvenient as well. Uh, it's a very expensive uh, piece of equipment uh, to build. It's actually the most expensive piece of medical equipment uh, in the world. And so there are about 
20, 25 centers in the United States where you can get proton radiation. Um, so typically for someone with lung cancer, they wouldn't necessarily want to travel to a proton center uh, if it's not in their area, if it's not a situation where there's really going to be a clear benefit. And um, I know I'm being a little bit general, but I think it's the type of situation where each person's um, specific problem at that point in time has to be evaluated to see if it's a, a good uh, situation for protons. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, excellent. And we have another telephone question. Um, Ayala? Our next question is from Stephanie Kay. Your line is now open. Thank you so much, Carolyn. This is an excellent seminar as usual. I have two questions. The first question I have, I'd like to know, is HER2 breast cancer is similar to HER2 lung cancer? If I, since I've had it, I want to know the genetic components. And also, if a person has it in the family lung cancer, the genetics of that, is this testing for that early besides having a chest x-rays? What other testing can you have to, for early prevention of lung cancer? Thank you. Well, thank you, um, Stephanie, for those questions and your remarks. And um, Dr. Wakeley, can you address this in a general way? Um, um, <clears throat> uh, sure. Again, a great question. So I mentioned a lot of different specific gene mutations that we're looking for in lung cancer, especially EGFR and ELK, but there are many, many others. And, and one of them that we find rarely in lung cancer is uh, something called HER2. Now, um, HER2 is very closely related to EGFR, which gets a little confusing, but EGFR is also called HER1, so if you hear that, it, it makes sense. Um, so there are patients with lung cancer who do have, instead of having a mutation in EGFR or ALK, have a specific mutation in HER2, and when we find that gene mutation, there are some targeted treatments that we can use, some of which also work for EGFR lung cancer and some of which are specific to sort of HER2. Now, the confusing part is that a HER2 mutation in lung cancer is different than the HER2 expression that's high in some breast cancers. So it's similar but different, and there is some overlap in treatments, um, but we're still trying to understand how to best use some of these HER2 treatments that were to first developed for breast cancer in lung cancer, they don't always work as well in lung cancer as they do in breast cancer, and it's a different way of thinking about the HER2. So it's a complex answer, um, but a, a very good question. Um, as far as the question about hereditary lung cancer, there are very few um, families that have lung cancer that spreads through the family. I actually had a patient yesterday um, with one of these. It's, it's a type of EGFR mutation called T790M, and that, that is one that very, very rarely can run in families and can increase the risk of lung cancer in those families. But for the most part, we don't have specific cancer genes that are passed down through families that lead to lung cancer, so it's different than some kinds of breast cancer or colon cancer. We know that there are some families where one or two people will get lung cancer, but it's not that same idea that you can look for it in the families that we know what to look for. So we're still trying to understand that genetics of lung cancer. Um, so a great question, but not the one we have a clear answer for. And right now there's a lot being done in screening for lung cancer, trying to find it early. Um, right now that's mostly done with uh, CT scans and people at high risk, but there's a lot being worked on to develop looking um, screening, not just with CT scans, but also with uh, maybe blood tests in the future and, and expanding how which people are being looked at for those risks. But um, we don't have a standard approach yet, except in people who have a, a high risk for lung cancer, in which case we do do CT screenings now. Excellent. Thank you. And um, there's one last online question uh, for Lynn Burkle. Um, Mr. Burkle, um, air travel issues for survivors of lung surgery. If you could just comment on... Um, actually, no, actually, I thought it was to Dr. Lee. I'm sorry. I thought it was there asking about specifics, but actually it's got air travel issues for survivors of lung, uh, lung surgery. That would sound like it goes more to Dr. Lee. Sorry. <laughs> sure. So, uh, uh, um, in terms of travel, uh, for most patients after lung surgery, there should not be uh, any significant limitations. Uh, the, there's advances in thoracic surgery have come a long way, 
so these days, um, uh, the surgical techniques have been refined to be less invasive. So there's lots of minimally invasive surgical techniques. We also try to preserve as much lung tissue as possible and, um, uh, and have moved away from doing old-fashioned uh, pneumonectomies. And uh, with the uh, newer techniques of radiation therapy that Dr. Rosenzweig had uh, uh, explained, uh, some of the uh, uh, morbid uh, thoracic uh, surgical uh, approaches uh, are actually now uh, being increasingly taken over with uh, by, by uh, radiation therapy. Um, so, uh, so thoracic surgery uh, is still a standard uh, for early stage lung cancers, but uh, I can see that say that most of my patients who after having gone undergone surgery, surgical resection, are breathing fine. They will be preoperatively checked for pulmonary function test to to be deemed um, uh, to to be able to undergo surgery and still have good uh, lung function afterwards. So uh, we, I don't see, uh, apart from perhaps only exceptions, the vast majority of patients can travel, they can fly, they can, uh, they don't, they won't need um, long-term oxygen therapy, and um, uh, they should be able to live as normal a life as possible. So this is, um, uh, uh, th this is uh, the case. Uh, of course, the pulmonary function tests, uh, a lot of patients, uh, is important, a lot of patients have coexisting COPD uh, or emphysema, and uh, the uh, who, who, and, and they have lung cancer, and then after surgery, the decline in pulmonary function uh, still has to be uh, monitored uh, by a pulmonologist uh, over time, and this is important, and this may still have implications in terms of travel and oxygen need and so forth, but um, I can say that uh, most of my patients who successfully had lung surgery uh, do not have um, travel limitations. Thank you. And actually, um, Mr. Merkel, there is an issue here on another part of another question that came in. Um, there is the issue of just being able to travel, um, financially to travel for treatment um, by air. So I wonder if you could comment on that for people with oh. lung cancer perhaps needing to travel. So when if sure. you could address that. Um. Yes, this is actually uh, quite a common uh, uh, topic for, for a lot of my uh, patients, uh, especially in uh, where I practice in New York and uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering, uh, we have patients coming all over the world, so they travel long distances. And um, I, I think it's a, it's, it's a, um, it's really, it comes down to a, um, a multifaceted question and it's, it's a unique answer to each patient. It's uh, for, for, for lung cancer, treatment, especially in the advanced lung cancer setting where treatment is ongoing and, and lifelong, uh, it makes sense ideally to have a treating oncologist or physician near home so that, uh, so that life can go on close to the comfort of home. And that could improve quality of life. And patients are encouraged to live as normal a life as possible. So whenever this is available, I tend to encourage that. Um, and uh, and coming to, to travel across the country or even across the, the globe um, uh, for cancer treatment repetitively, and that sometimes in meaning every, uh, a, a visit every week or a visit every two weeks, uh, can place a significant burden on the uh, uh, on the quality of life of the patient. Uh, having said that, um, there are some, uh, there are certainly some good reasons to travel as well uh, for for care uh, in a, at a distant centre. For example, participation in a clinical trial that's highly promising from based on the uh, precision therapy match that we talked about earlier that may not be available at your near your home and and frankly I have patients who who travel from afar from across the globe who are here on life-saving therapy and uh, and and living well as a result of a, a precise clinical trial treatment um, so this is certainly uh, for the right patient who's fit, who's willing to travel, who's also uh, socially, financially, this all works for the patient, 
and um, and these uh, there are good justifications for traveling uh, at a huge distance to get treatment. The other thing is also when it comes down to a definitive treatment that is potentially aiming at a cure for the cancer uh, in the early stage setting. So you have one shot at uh, sort of life and death and and you really want to get this done right. And especially when it comes to complex thoracic surgeries, we, are, we advise patients to go to high-volume centers, cancer centers, where the surgeon has really great world-class expertise uh, who perform lots of those complex surgeries every single day. And, and those are the centers that come up with the best outcome for uh, definitive care. Um, so that is also another indication to travel far if you have this one shot at getting getting a cure. Um, and, and that may be a much more limited time. This could be uh, uh, several weeks of, um, uh, uh, of, of staying at a foreign city or so forth. And, and the patient after, a peri after, after care, they go back home. So this is not lifelong. So in that case, it's also justifiable, I think, a very reasonable thing to do. And also, if, you, uh, if a particular type of tumor needs a particular uh, type of uh, special uh, radiation uh, therapy technique that's also not available uh, close to home, and also the, um, the skill of the radiation oncologist is actually very important. The technical, there are great technical differences as well. So in that case, um, you know, traveling to get a uh, uh, the state-of-the-art uh, radiation therapy, for example, with Dr. Rosenzweig, I think is is very uh, reasonable to do so. So I mean, that's um, those are the scenarios that I can see uh, patients come to Memorial Sloan Kettering to get care appropriately. Uh, there are also situations where I patients you know, drive six, eight hours just to see me where they can get the same treatment close to home, I would actually pick up the phone and speak to their local oncologist and advise what we would do at Sloan Kettering, talk to the oncologist and have that the same drug delivered close to home. I think that's a much better uh, way of delivering care close to home and better for quality of life in the advanced metastatic setting. So um, that's, that's my, my take uh, when it comes to traveling uh, for medical care. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. This has been an outstanding call. I want to thank all of our speakers. You've just been extraordinary. And I want to thank all of you who've asked such great questions. It really enhances the call. And um, just in wrapping up the call, I want to actually thank you all for participating. Um, also, if you do have any medical questions that you still have not had answered, um, we actually do remind you that um, to go ahead and call um, the National Cancer Institute at 1-800-422-6237. And you'll be getting that resource in the, you know, from us in your evaluation materials. You'll be getting that. And also, um, you also want to speak to your healthcare team. I know some of you like to get information in addition to speaking to your healthcare team, but actually you always go to credible sites. So Dr. Wakeley had given some uh, websites, um, you know, clinicaltrials.gov, and we'll give those to you in your evaluations so you'll be able to see them and you'll be able to access those as really, really credible and well-researched, uh, um, you know, um, websites to go to or phone call, net, phone, um, telephone calls to make so that you can actually get your very best, um, you know, very best answers to your questions in addition, of course, to your healthcare team. Um, also, um, the National Cancers does have a live chat feature, so for our international participants or those in the U.S., you can go to www.cancer.gov, and they have a live help feature, and you can actually post your question, and one of the information specialists will be happy to address it and find all the resources that you would need to be confident about that, um, about your, the information you're given. So as we conclude, if anyone also would like to access services from Cancer Care, and I think Mr. Burkle reviewed all of those services quite completely, um, you can simply call Cancer Care, and our oncology social work staff are happy to help you, or you can visit our website or pose a question on our website as well, so one of our staff would follow up with you. Again, I want to thank you for your participation. We do have a part two to this program. It's for caregivers, practical tips for coping with your loved one's lung cancer on February 13th. So we look forward to your participating in that program as well. Thank you all, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This
This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.